In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. One of the things that keeps me up and bothers me the most is this us versus everybody else mentality. And the lack of inclusion of trans-identified people in, in everything. Tori Cooper, a black transgender woman living with HIV, is executive director of Advocates for Better Care, based in Atlanta, Georgia. A well-known advocate for transgender and HIV-positive communities, she advises policymakers, providers, and clinicians, and speaks often to media and at public fora. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. We're here today in Atlanta, site of the 8th Atlanta Global Health Summit conducted by CSIS and the World Affairs Council of Atlanta. And we have with us today Tori Cooper, founder and executive director of Advocates for Better Care. She, as she will explain, lives with HIV, is transgender, and is a prominent and highly active advocate. Thank you so much, Tori, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So we have begun to put a focus across several of our podcasts uh, for this series. We've put a special focus on the question of advocacy and ask the question, does advocacy still matter today? And we put that question to Mark Haywood, co-founder of Treatment Action Campaign in South Africa. And this podcast will be under that mega question. It's an important question, obviously, today in the United States, where you have a new presidentially led program to end HIV by 2030. So there's a spotlight There's a new focus on engaging communities on both treatment and prevention, communities that have been oftentimes marginalized, stigmatized, ignored, overlooked, those communities where HIV is a prominent threat or large numbers of people living with HIV. So we know in the past that advocacy was profoundly important at driving change in the behavior of governments and the behavior of other community leaders in mobilizing the people who live with HIV, in mobilizing those who are under threat of HIV most, having the populations at the table, voicing their concerns, using their political influence has proven to be critically important at different moments of crisis. But we also know that over time, Things can change. The epidemic can change. People can be distracted by other priorities. People can become complacent. It's hard to sustain high-level mobilization indefinitely. You may see that advocates become co-opted. They can become too comfortable. These are hard questions, and they're really important, and we're delighted that you would join us, Tori, because 
you are really at the center of these issues. This is your life. Let's start with just a couple of moments from you on your career. You living with HIV? Can you talk about the, the your own history with the, with HIV? Can you talk about your role as a transgender woman activist and leader? Well, thank you again for having me. This is an, indeed a, a wonderful opportunity to share some of my experiences and, and, and hopefully in the best light represent folks who uh, are similar or who have similar stories. Uh, one of the first things I'd like to do is add another adjective that kind of precurses all of the others. So not only am I a trans woman uh, or a person living with HIV, but I'm first black. And you may not notice all of those other things about me, but when you see me in a grocery store, you will first identify me as black and then a woman. And then perhaps some of the other adjectives and, and descriptive words that you can add along to it. So I make sure that people understand that everything I do and in every part of, of the work that I do and, and in my advocacy, it is important to understand that I prioritize black people because I am black, number one. And so as I, I fight for uh, people who are living with HIV. As a black woman, I'm making sure that I'm getting what I need from it as well. So that that's selfish activism in a way, but it is selfish in the sense that um, black women are growing at a faster rate of infection than any other risk category. Um, and that trans women are more high, black trans women in particular, are more highly impacted by HIV because our numbers are so similar to that of black MSM, but we're such a smaller group of people that it impacts our community even more so. So it's important to understand um, that Black plays a part in all, being black plays a part of that, and my blackness uh, helps to fuel my advocacy. So tell us, how did you become an ad, a professional advocate? I didn't do it on purpose. So um, I was diagnosed with HIV a long time ago, uh, before I even understood the complexity of it. And, and I started taking medications when, and my first cocktail was 36 pills a day. And I took them faithfully and I did well on the regimen. Um, and then, uh, so I've seen how medicine has progressed and how HIV treatment has progressed over the years and also how advocacy has progressed as well. Um, back in 1989 and, and even for the next few years, there weren't a lot of black people that weren't. Well, there weren't a lot of black people at all on the forefronts. And, and so I often say that that the entire HIV care system was created by white men for white men so that they could die in dignity because there wasn't medicine around at the beginning. And so as they built this incredibly successful campaign, which we're still seeing the benefits of now as rates for uh, white gay men are continually uh, dropping, um, they built a great system of care for themselves. But what has happened is other groups have continued to see their numbers rise and are still continually seeing their numbers rise. And see, if we stay numbers that are, that are remaining close to the same, then that's a huge loss, in my opinion. Um, because 35 years into the epidemic and we're not seeing numbers drop in every category means we have a whole bunch of work to do and that there are a lot of things that we aren't addressing. So how would you characterize the vitality and quality of the advocacy community today? 
oh my goodness, it, it's more diverse, I think, than it has ever been. Um, we are, we represent a whole bunch of different identities. We've represented a whole bunch of different countries and a whole bunch of different isms and a whole bunch of different everything, a whole bunch of different racial identities, uh, gender identities, sexual identities, uh, locations in the country, locations in the world. And people have are advocates, I will use that word on purpose, advocates are creating messages that speak to the times that we're in. So they are, in your mind, there's a very vibrant and dynamic advocacy movement. Without question. It might look very, very different than it used Mm -hmm. to. Um, Mm -hmm. And even the the impact, the intent, and even the color of it. And I don't mean color as in the, the... color of the people. So what, are the, what are the top line concerns, the top line agenda items for the advocacy community today, in your view, if you're going to go in front of an audience of people who are ignorant of HIV and ignorant of the agenda and what more needs to happen today, what do you tell them from the standpoint of the community, from the standpoint of advocates? These are the top line points. So I will first say that I understand my privilege in life, period. But with that being said, quite often what we hear are different different people experiencing and voicing access, their need for greater access in different ways. Um, access could be simply accessing medication, accessing doctors who are culturally aware, culturally uh, practice cultural humility, all of those kind of things. For people who are not living with HIV, it could be accessing PrEP services. Um, there are a whole bunch of things for, for marginalized folks, which many of us are, um, even in my own privilege. But so you're saying that there's, the dis- there's innate distrust of health system. Oh, without question. There's oftentimes lack of awareness of what the options are or how to access the options. People may have a vague notion if, let's say, they're, they're, they're HIV negative, but they know they're at high risk and they're trying to access PrEP. Mm-hmm. They may not know how to get to PrEP. Or PrEP might not be available in the area. Yes. So we're in Atlanta, and Atlanta is kind of divided into Atlanta and then the state of Georgia. And for people familiar with Atlanta, there's this highway 285 that is literally an oval that circles the city of Atlanta. And once you, you know that inside of that circle, we call it the perimeter, inside of that circle, we're considered to be one of the more progressive places in the country. But 15 minutes away from where we are right now are, live some of the most conservative folks and conservative ideologies that exist in the country. And, and what that's doing is it, it creates even more barriers of access for people who live on the edge of of 285 and even beyond because people with HIV don't just live inside of the bear, inside of uh, 285 here. They're everywhere. But the systems that are available to access the providers, um, PrEP, uh, HIV health related services, all of those things, the further you go off from inside of the perimeter and even certain parts of the perimeter, your options become fewer and fewer. So okay, if you live so your 25 minutes away, you might right, not have an HIV right. doctor there at all. Yeah, so your advocacy strategy inside the perimeter is one thing. Mm-hmm. The strategy outside the perimeter is another. Correct. Now, how 
large are the issues around housing, around mental health services, around employment and poverty alleviation. We know that there are all of these non-health related matters, transport, that are so prominent for many of the populations that we're talking about trying to reach that are outside, that are not getting tested, treated, kept on adherence in their adherence and moved to viral suppression. We know that we have lots of, of folks in Atlanta who fall off of treatment. We're having a serious problem in terms of maintaining adherence and moving to viral suppression. How do you deal with that multitude of issues? How do you prioritize those? How do you bring across that image of that concept or vision of these are the top line things we need to focus on here in Atlanta? So one of the best ways to reach people is by living your best life. And if that means making sure that people understand, if that means setting yourself up as an example to say, you know what, HIV didn't stop me from from getting a, a college degree or master's degree. HIV didn't keep me from buying a house. HIV didn't keep me from finding love and having a family. But what it also means is that we have to, for people who don't even get that or, or who who can't see that, then it's important to make sure that people understand um, that you can have all of these wonderful things. And also, we need to try and shift our focus, not just on what we think that people need, but what people are telling us, sometimes in their words, but often in their actions. People are telling us when they when they get drop out of care, they're telling us that there's something keeping them from getting there or that they haven't prioritized their care. Why? Because some people still don't see a benefit in taking HIV medications. Because if I take this pill for HIV, I'm still homeless. If I take this pill for HIV, I still have bipolar or, or schizophrenia or, or manic depression. If I take this pill for HIV, I still can't get a job. And so because the HIV epidemic does not address so many of those other things that we label as social determinants of health, many people who are living with HIV that are not retained in care don't see an advantage to taking a pill every day that is going to have some type of side effects. Right. Why has it been so difficult to make progress on PrEP in your view? What's, I think for many of those major same reasons. And, and so I'm also, I'll be 50 in just a few months. Congratulations. Well, thank you. You wouldn't tell me your life. age earlier. I wouldn't because you asked. <laughs> I, I can volunteer that information, but you shouldn't ask a lady her age. So I still live in the South. So um, it is important to understand that PrEP is great and it is a wonderful option for some people. Mm -hmm. But the message that we have historically been sending uh, to use PrEP is take this pill and you won't get HIV. Well, that's not entirely true. Take this pill every day. Use condoms. Limit your sexual partners. Those are really the things that healthcare people, uh, providers are telling people. And so we're the, I said my age because I'm the first generation and people of my age and probably five to 10 years above and below me, we're the very first generation on the face of the earth who had to change sexual practices after we started having sex. Um, HIV was introduced into the United States somewhere around the early 80s. So for many of us who may have lost our virginity or started experimenting with sex um, around 15 to 16 years old, that was 85, 86. And so we weren't having using condoms when we first started having sex. 
because HIV wasn't a big deal. It didn't affect us, especially black people in 85 and 86. But by 1990, when we were 20 and 91, when we were 21, all of a sudden, the message is use condoms. And so if you have been having sex with someone and there was no risk of pregnancy for five, six, maybe 10 years, depending on how old you are, then it is important to remember we suddenly got these messages that were saying you're going to hell and you're going to catch AIDS and die if you don't use condoms. Well, what's the old saying? You can't teach an old dog new tricks? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, for some people, that is the case. And what we saw is these huge spikes of folks who were uh, being diagnosed with HIV because they didn't change their habits. Some of us didn't realize that we were at risk for HIV. And I say they didn't change their habits kind of as a tongue in cheek thing, because that's that's what what health officials say. Well, you didn't change what you you didn't do what you should have done. You didn't protect yourself. Well, if everyone wore a condom every time they have sex, most of us wouldn't be here today. Now, tell me, what works in dealing and in, in reaching and communicating? You're a communicator. What works best in reaching today's youth? Today's person that is entering adulthood and entering an active sexual life that has not seen the scourge, not lived through the days of plague and the days of great fear and uncertainty being raised in a much different environment with their own very different technology, their own very different way of communicating with one another and how they consume information, where they turn. What is your approach to that population? So first of all, I'm, again, I'm I'm in my 50th year. So that is important because there are some things that I can offer as as an elder in society mm-hmm. to these younger folks that their peers can't do. But I think it's also important for me to step back and empower some young folks to talk to young folks. And I, I promise you, I was just having this conversation in the lobby. I tell all of us, folks who are advocates, folks of, I, I have a dual or, or really uh, more than two roles. I'm not only a community uh, I'm not only community, part of the HIV community, but I'm also a provider of services as well. So I have that duality there. Yes. And so I tell all of my colleagues that we have to be multilingual. Doesn't mean that we have to speak Chinese or Russian, but what it means is we need to be able to speak South Side of Atlanta. We need to speak, be able to speak Buckhead. We need, need to be able to speak Bankhead. We need to speak Decatur. We need to speak College Park. We need to speak uh, Duluth. We need to speak Clayton County. We need to speak all of those things and or bring in folks who speak those different languages because those are the communities that we're serving. And so my voice, everyone can't understand what I'm saying. I'm a black trans woman. Got it. You're a white man. But whatever you are, everyone can't understand you as a white man talking. And so it is important to understand that we, as much information, valuable information as we can share, there's some people who still can't hear the message from either of us. So it is important that we have more advocates and more healthcare providers and much more diversity than just color um, in every single thing that we do. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what is the, the thing that most bothers you? What keeps you awake at night? Oh, my goodness. I mean, what is it in this world of being an advocate and a a provider of services at this moment in time? What is it that bothers you the most? 
one of the things that keeps me up and bothers me the most is this us versus uh, everybody else mentality. And the lack of inclusion of trans-identified people in, in everything. There's a lack of, of research data on a significant, um, terrible, terrible, terrible lack of research data. Um, uh, uh, there is a lack of empathy in healthcare systems mm-hmm. for trans folks. Not sympathy, but empathy. There is still a, la- a, a whole bunch of lapses and lacks of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just education of who we are, but um, on our basic body functions and mm-hmm. how medicines interact and, um, and, and react HIV medicines along with hormonal therapy. Because if we are able to speak from an educated standpoint for trans folks, trans masculine folks and trans feminine folks who are perhaps taking um, medicines to help their transition, then it's important for a doctor to be able to tell them. So these are some things that we've noticed that happen as interactions with your medications. And these are some things that we don't know. But now we still have providers who are saying, well, I don't know how to prescribe this. My mom had a hysterectomy in her 40s because black women, black again, black women are, are often advised to have hysterectomies at more than double the rate of white women for the exact same illnesses. Were you aware of that? No, I was not. It's good information. That's why I talk, part of the reason I talk about black and white so much, there's so many health disparities. My mom and I take the same medicines because she had a hysterectomy and Mm -hmm. I'm transitioning my body to go along with my brain. And that's how she found out I was on hormones a long time ago. I see. It had nothing to, Mm. so if we're taking the same hormones for two different conditions for the and we're biologically linked this is my biological mother then there are some things that are going that are happening in her body that are happening in mine we're in a particular moment in time in the last few years in which the legal protections the employment rights of transgender people have been challenged and and there's been regressive action and there remains a continued contest in the courts, in the executive agencies, at the state level. Do you feel that the transgender community is in a stronger, better, more respected position today than it was 10 years ago? That's a loaded question. Uh, There are some places where the transgender community is more respected, but I think overall from the federal government down, there is an intentionality, a very, very conscious, intentional effort to erase us from the existence of, uh, of the face of the earth, certainly of the United States. Um, there are everyday uh, trans folks, myself and many, many other advocates across the country, we're posting and we're having discussions about the murder of black trans women across the country. So... Why is it that 21 of us are being uh, have been murdered this year alone and we're causing such a, a kerfuffle? Because white men are killed every day, black men are killed every day, black women and white women are killed every day. But again, because we're a smaller community and it impacts us. And many dear, of us this is often deliberate targeted violence. Oh, without question. Without yes. question. And target is a word I'd love for us to talk a little bit more yeah. about too. It is targeted violence. And we're such a small community. And these folks aren't dying in car accidents. They're dying because someone killed them. They murdered them in often very, very violent um, 
and intimate ways merely because of who they are. Yes, I understand. Let's talk a bit. We're towards the end here. Let's talk about the International AIDS Conference. We have next July, July 6th to 10th, we have the International AIDS Conference returning to San Fran- the Bay Area after 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it'll be held for the first time ever in two cities, in Oakland, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Congresswoman Barbara Lee has been a huge advocate in getting us to this point. She and Speaker Pelosi held a press conference short while ago that was terrific talking about this along with Monica Gandhi, the chair for uh, San Francisco, the local chair for San Francisco, Cynthia Carey Grant, the the chair, you probably know both of these women, the chair for Oakland, the mayors, the two mayors of the cities. It's a really remarkable thing that's happening. Um, Tell us a bit in your view, Tori, What's the value of these conferences, in your view, from where you stand as an advocate? So may I first add that most of the names that you mentioned are not people who are living with HIV, and there are a lot of people with HIV who are really upset about having the conference in San Francisco and Oakland. Let me first say that. Um, So in response to your question, the importance of having convenings like this is that advocates, healthcare workers, providers of services, government officials, politicians. Having conferences like this present some of the only opportunities that all of us have to sit together and to convene and to be as as close to an even platform as we can possibly Mm -hmm. be. There's access there, which is where we actually started this interview, talking about access. But there's a level of access that you have at these conferences and information and education and resources that are shared there that you can't get in your local areas from Joe Schmo that's on the corner. And so, so many amazing um, ideas are birthed at these conferences, and it is indispensable. And I think that we need to build on these ideas so it becomes, uh, and, and on these conferences, so not just a select few people right. are invited, but right. even more folks, folks who may not work in the field, but are people living with HIV and perhaps some of our allies who just want to know more or just want to yes. be supportive. So I think that there's invaluable experience that takes place at those. And I'm so I've not been to um, this conference yet, but my goal is to go. I wanted to go in, into Durban, but I had to work. Well, I do hope you do go. And I want to add one point, which is there, the local organizing committees, yes. before, which are combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, uh, Rob Newells, Larkin Callahan, mm-hmm. um, co-chair the local organizing groups, which are broken into a number of extensive committees. But they have over 150 people participating in that. That's unprecedented yes. in terms of the level of energy and commitment coming from the communities around this. And I'm, you know, great credit to Rob and Larkin for the work that they've done, but more importantly to the commitment of those in the community who early on committed to, to think through and have a voice and influence this. And I know there's controversy surrounding this. That is not out of keeping with this conference. Every conference that has been held has been a subject of some controversy and debate. And here it's magnified and augmented by the, by the fact 
that it's occurring during the Trump administration. As we've talked about this morning, the Trump administration has introduced a new domestic plan. I want to close by asking you, what's it going to take, in your view, what's it going to take for that plan in your world here in Atlanta? What is it going to take for that to be meaningful and real and successful, in your view? So... In the epidemic is what you're referring to. Um, and I am, I, myself, and a lot of advocates, we're cautiously optimistic. Um, the president has not mentioned HIV and AIDS very much during it, uh, his, his tenure so far. And we're kind of glad of that because when he mentions something, often there's something really divisive that comes out of his mouth right after it because it doesn't impact his family directly. Um, and so, I'm cautiously optimistic about this money, but what worries me most is that there wasn't a plan in place. I, I don't see where there was activism and there was community engagement prior to just shipping money across the country. Well, I thought the period now is where there's intensified consultation and communities are being asked, please work with us to put a plan of action together. That's part of the problem, work with us. So mm -hmm. I think in this particular case, under this particular administration, perhaps a better strategy is to empower folks mm -hmm. to spend the money in the ways that they see fit for their own communities rather than work with us. Yeah, it, we, it, had, we had a meeting recently with one of the senior officials from NIH. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting because they had pulled together, I forget the precise number, five or six million dollars. Mm -hmm. In, in order to give to uh, a portion of that to those communities that were ready, that were signaling, look, we're ready. We need a little bit of resources in order to get our plan together mm -hmm. and, uh, and to, to help that process along. And I thought that was a really great sign, a great sign of, of exactly what you're talking about, which is to empower the communities to get themselves organized around their plan and have that be be the basis for moving forward. We're getting to the ends of our end of our time together here on this podcast. What is it that gives you the greatest hope looking into the future, Tori? So the greatest hope is that the government will, uh, the federal government will hire another HIV czar. I had to add that in. But um, on a personal note, one of my greatest hopes is that People who are living with HIV have the ability to end the epidemic, period. Um, people who are living with HIV who've become virally suppressed, every person that's listened to your podcast ought to know this. They've achieved viral suppression, maintained it for six months continuously and continue to do so, uh, are, are, are therefore incapable of passing HIV along to their sexual partners. That's wonderful news. People who are living with HIV have known it for years. I believe that we are not prioritizing folks who are living with HIV in ways that we should. Um, at local, regional, national, and international levels, we still aren't addressing some of the most basic needs, safety, education, access, 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 for people who are living with HIV to encourage and to assist with getting to viral suppression and maintaining it. And so we're failing, and that's what I believe is Tory Cooper's statement. I, I'm optimistic that we're 
getting it. It's just slow to get there because I know that's going to work because it has worked. It, it has worked viral suppression and it will work. And I'm optimistic that we're finally seeing that it can be done. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.